The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. So I want to start this morning with a little bit of a confession. It is hard for me to keep up with all of the promises and commitments that I make in life. At work, requests and demands seem to come from every direction. When asked how quickly I can make a return on requests, uh, I usually say whatever it is that I think that the asker wants to hear. I usually respond with sort of a people-pleasing desire to return it faster than I ever possibly can. My list of home projects that need to be done goes to a second volume. Am I the only one who experiences that, or is there, is there anybody else? Whenever Kayla reminds me of some appointment that we have, my typical response is, when did I agree to that? I have no memory. Thanks, <laughs> I mean well. I don't want to let people down. I just don't have the time or knowledge or power to do all the things that I've said that I will do. I think it's maybe why our Lord has commanded us in the Sermon on the Mount uh, not to make oaths. Whatever we swear by, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, we don't really have any power over it. We don't have any control over it. Even our own head changes on us without us being able to do anything about it. Our hairs turn gray. Not even that is a basis for us to make any guarantee that we can fulfill the promises that we make to others. To really make a promise and to have certainty that you could fulfill that promise and for other people to have confidence that you could fulfill that promise, you would have to have sovereign authority, power, and knowledge over all of time and creation and space. It seems that real promises and real promise-keeping are business that only the one who made all things can operate in. If we are to become the people of God, and that's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks, how we're going to become the people of God, only God can make and enact the promises necessary to do it. So this morning, we're continuing in the true story of the whole world. And in chapter one of the story that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that God created a people for himself. And this will just be a brief recap. He created a people for himself and a place for those people to gather and live and worship him. We saw how the complementary nature of creation, light and dark, land and sea, man and woman, all point to a God who wants to be with his creation, points to a savior who wants to be with his church. Chapter, story, or chapter two last week marked the turn. Man falls through sinfully eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God responds with just judgment, but also promises mercy and victory over the serpent through the woman's seed. But we saw that the first crop of the woman's seed doesn't look great. The firstborn Cain disqualifies himself as a serpent slayer through unworthy sacrifices and murdering one of God's people. Sin compounds and compounds. It seems exponential. God mercifully marks Cain for protection with a warning that harm to Cain comes back on the harmer sevenfold. But then Cain's descendant, Lamech, continues Cain's legacy of murder. Lamech will say to his wives that if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech is avenged 77 times. So in that, he normalizes his murder 
and he multiplies the revenge that he wants to take on, on anyone that tries to bring him to justice. It gets so bad that God ultimately determines in his just judgment that mankind must be destroyed. Yet even in that judgment, God shows mercy. He preserves a single family, Noah's family, from all the families of the earth through the flood. But things don't improve much from there. Though Noah feared God and was counted righteous in his day, he lacked self-control and creates the conditions for his son to dishonor him. Ham acts perversely towards his father Noah. And this is despite firsthand knowledge of God's judgment on wickedness and of God's mercy that he's shown to, to Ham's family. The humanity that descends from Noah seems uninterested in God's purposes, though God has commanded them to fill the earth, to, to multiply and fill the earth. They reject that purpose at the Tower of Babel and try to create a culture that will hold all the peoples of the earth in one location. It seems like if God's purposes in making a people for himself are going to come to fruition, drastic measures have to be taken. We have a few texts to cover this morning, uh, so we'll have to move quickly. If you like, you can go ahead and put your finger in Genesis 15 and 22. But we're going to begin in Genesis 12, so turn there if you will. I'll start in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with them. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Okay, there's a couple things I want to see in this passage. Number one. God selects Abraham, and I'm just going to use Abraham throughout. God is going to change his name later in the story. Without apparent regard to Abraham's character. As far as I can tell, there's nothing special about Abraham. He's just a normal guy living in the ancient world. There's nothing special about him except that God selects him. So keep that in mind. God, God is the one who selects. God is the one who chooses. The second thing I want us to see, some form of the word bless appears five times in this passage. The dominant theme of the passage is bless and blessing. It's kind of a little repetitive, and it almost it kind of seems like rambling at first, or it would be if, if I were the one saying it, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I'll tell you a little story. A few weeks ago, uh, I got to spend some time with the greenhouse guys and Trevor, uh, we were having a conversation about some online debate, and I was up in arms about it. Pretty typical, shocking, yeah. <laughs> so I made the point that one side was being a little straw man when talking about the side that I agreed with. And just so you understand, straw manning just means restating your opponent's argument in the most ridiculous way possible so that you can attack the argument as being foolish. So straw manning, got it? And I said, the bad guys were being a little bit straw man. But Mikey, <laughs> it was you. Uh, 
That wasn't good enough for Mikey. Mikey responds with, a little straw man. It's very straw man. I don't like being outdone. So I responded that, well, actually, when you think about it for a moment, it's extremely straw man. <laughs> Trevor, in his wisdom, saw the need to step in here and provide sort of an authoritative clarity. He settled the matter when he offered that, clearly, it's completely straw man. Each time we said straw man, it strengthened our righteous indignation about how someone we've never met was being misrepresented online. <laughs> now that example is kind of silly. <laughs> uh, so a more serious example might be helpful. Consider a verse like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. Do y'all remember that verse? Do you know it? Because I didn't write down the reference, so um, I'm just going to trust your familiarity with the verse. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. The poetic repetition of the verse drives home how holy our Lord is. It's not just very holy or extremely holy or even three times holy. It's holy times holy times holy. It's holiness cubed. It's an exponential curve of holiness. I think it's the same with Genesis 12. Blessing and the compounding interest of blessing are being promised here. And just like it's hard to count numbers on exponential curves, you know, like as it goes further on X, on Y, it's getting huge, and you can't count all the way to 10 squared or 10 cubed. And just like it's hard to count those numbers, it will be impossible to measure the blessing that God is promising Abraham. That's not all that's happening here. One commentary pointed out that up to this point in the story of the whole world, one of the dominant themes is curse. So we have blessing in this passage and curse through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. God curses a serpent. He curses the ground. He curses Cain for murdering Abel. Lamech, the father of Noah, and a different Lamech than the descendant of Cain, prophesies about relief from the curse, and Noah curses Canaan for Ham's wickedness. So in total, the Hebrew word for curse has appeared five times up to now in Genesis 1 through 11. Is that a coincidence? I'm convinced that it's not. It seems that the five uses of bless in Genesis 12 are God's response to the dominant reality of the curse demonstrated in curses five appearances through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. God's promise of blessing to Abraham is so much more than just an announcement to one person that God is going to provide a charmed life for him. It is the declaration that God is beginning the work of undoing the curse. N.T. Wright has a great quote about this. Um, it should be up on the screen. He says this, Abraham emerges within the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of all humankind. The line of disaster and of the curse from Adam through Cain, through the flood to Babel, begins to be reversed when God calls Abraham and says, and you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All right, so I want to take a moment and think about what we've seen so far. Who would make promises like these? Who could make promises like these? The one who still intends to be with his people in the place he will prepare for them. 
the one whose intentions are as good as promises, the one who discloses his promises to his people for their encouragement and their instruction, and the one who keeps those promises for his own glory and for his people's good. Why would God do this? Why obligate himself to creatures? Only his gracious, benevolent kindness can explain it. And that brings us to our first big takeaway from from the sermon this morning. Number one, God is a promising God. God is a covenant-making God. God is a promising God. God is a covenant-making God. That's a new word, covenant. What does it mean to be a covenant-making God? What's a covenant? Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 15. I'll start in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Pause for a second. So some cracks are beginning to show in Abraham's confidence. Uh, The encounter with God here comes on the heels of Genesis 14, where Abraham has turned down money and influence because he didn't want to be associated with the wicked king of Sodom. I think he's a little worried that he might have been keeping himself pure for nothing if the promise is is taking longer than he thought it would to be fulfilled. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. The man shall not be your heir. This, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, How am I to know that I shall possess it? Abraham still an uncertain. Verse 9. He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Another quick pause. These offerings are the ones that are going to be used in the Levitical worship of Israel later in the big story. Uh, They point forward to that relationship and show continuity with the covenant that's about to be introduced um, in the next few verses. Verse 10, and he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now pay close attention to this next bit. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, 
Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. And God finishes the chapter by describing the extent, extent of the land that he's promising. This all seems a little unusual. What's going on here? D.A. Carson wrote a book called The God Who Is There, and it is a very accessible book that uh, does sort of a survey of redemptive history, and I highly, highly recommend it uh, if you're looking for something along those lines. In it, Carson's naming convention for each chapter is something like the God who, and then a description of God. So, for instance, the chapter on creation is the God who made everything. The chapter that explains the Abrahamic covenant and everything we're discussing today is called The God Who Writes His Own Agreements. The chapter itself is great, but as titles go, it may sound a little bit underwhelming. But when you think about it, it's, it's kind of profound. Sooner or later, everyone who's ever lived is going to have to deal with what they believe about God and how they're going to approach him. What kind of deal would you try to make with the God of all creation, the God who made all things. Carson goes on to describe a few different ways of approaching God. You might approach him as, uh, you might approach his mercy as license to sin. Carson tells of a friend who professed belief in God, but when confronted about his infidelity, just responded with, God forgives, that's his job. You could view God through the lens of deism, believing that God made all things, but now stands far apart from his creation and isn't really interested in the day-to-day -day activities of individuals. Or you can take a, a sort of transactional approach, and this is what we see in, in kind of old pagan religions, where you try to give gifts of appeasement to God or the gods, hoping that if you give the right one, they're going to show favor to your business endeavors or, or other goals. You think about if you're a sea trader, you would go and make a sacrifice to Poseidon hoping that you'll have good weather and that pirates won't attack your ship and that you'll get to your harbor safely. God's word describes God differently than any of these. In fact, in God's word, it's God who approaches us. In Genesis 12 and now in Genesis 15, God is the initiator of the relationship with Abraham. This is going to be the paradigm for how God brings in any and every person that belongs to him from here until Christ returns at the end of the story. And spoiler alert, Christ returns at the end of the story. We need to come to terms with that. There's another aspect of God to be understood from Genesis 15. God selects the ceremonial pictures that he will use to teach us about him. In Genesis 15, the ceremony God selects is sometimes called cutting a covenant. Have you ever heard that term? It appears to be a common form of ceremony for the time and place that Abraham lived. It was commonly enacted between sovereigns that would be sort of the supreme ruler and their vassals that would be sub-rulers underneath them. It described the obligations of each party towards the other, and the, the vassal would give homage, fealty, and tribute to the sovereign, and the sovereign would protect and assist the vassal. The symbolism of the ceremony is a little bit strange to us. We don't have any experience with it in our day-to-day -day lives. The two parties would typically walk together through animals that had been cut in half. 
And this would signify that should either party not keep the terms, the obligations of the covenant, then what had happened to the animals should be the consequence to the covenant breaker. Why does God pick this ceremony? I'll tell you, the first time I witnessed a 21-gun salute, I thought it was really odd. There was clearly only seven guns, and I didn't know why firing them three times made them into 21 guns. So I don't know if this bothered anybody else. And I don't know how that practice developed, but I do know that I've seen it enough times, mostly in movies and on television, that the ceremony has become familiar to me and it's become meaningful to me. And so that whenever I see it now, I get a little choked up. I can't help but think, like, this is a person who's given their life to protect our nation. Now back to Abraham. Abraham moved in elevated, lofty circles um, in the time that he lived. He hobnobbed with kings. He married a woman whose name means princess. God himself had promised to make him the first sovereign over a new nation that God was starting. The ceremony was probably familiar to Abraham and probably had meaning for him, and he probably understood what was being communicated. But there was one part that wasn't familiar. Something new happens, and it's amazing. The covenant always has obligations for both parties. Specifically, Abraham is expected to continue believing God and acting as if what God has promised is true, and God is expected to keep those promises. But there's one problem. God knows that Abraham cannot do it. Not fully. Not completely. Abraham is a descendant of Noah. Noah is a descendant of Adam, and Abraham cannot do it. He's demonstrated remarkable faith in God up to this point. He left his homeland, but he's also fallen flat on his face. We had to skip over some of these, but later in chapter 12, when Abraham has just left his homeland and, and shown faith, he then loses his nerve in front of the Egyptians he convinces himself that Pharaoh is going to kill him to, to get to his beautiful wife, Sarah. He doesn't believe that God either can or will protect him, can or will preserve his life, despite that being essential to God fulfilling his promise. So he risks or writes off Sarah's purity to save his own neck. In chapter 16, Sarah and Abraham lose faith or patience or both in the promises of God and try to bring about the covenant heir through their own means by Abraham breaking his marriage vow to Sarah and trying to conceive a child with her servant, Hagar. The consequence of that is conflict between Isaac's descendants and Ishmael's descendants down to the present day. That's probably the most relevant point I'm going to make about current events. So, In chapter 18, again, we see Abraham run the same scan that he tried to scam that he tried to run in Egypt. This time, the mark is the name, a king named Abimelech, and again, the Lord himself intervenes to preserve Sarah's purity. So what does it mean when God passes through the sacrifices alone? It shows God's commitment to fulfilling all parts of the covenant so as to make sure that the covenant will stand. But it also makes a subtler point. Someone is going to have to bear the consequence for the many failures of God's people to keep the covenant over the next 4,000 years. 
Someone is going to have to be brutalized in the same way that the sacrifices are brutalized. Someone's going to have to be torn in half. Who's it going to be? Who can uphold that covenant obligation? Only God's son. Only Jesus Christ will be able to do it. So here, God is again preaching the gospel and pointing forward to a day when his son is going to be the one that keeps the covenant for God's people. Let's pause here again for a moment and kind of step back and and see where we've been. Maybe ask a couple questions. If God will always keep his promises, then why is covenant necessary? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, it introduces man's obligations to God. The covenant is a two-sided relationship, and and even though Abraham is not able to, to fulfill his side of the covenant, he's still supposed to try to learn to be that kind of covenant keeper. And number two, it reassures Abraham in a picture language that he's familiar with. Like we said before, he would know this covenant. And this covenant is underscoring and reassuring a doubting Abraham that God is going to keep the promises he made. So there's a couple more things to be understood about the covenant that God has made with Abraham from chapter 17. Uh, Unfortunately, just for time's sake, we're going to have to summarize that. The, thing, the events that happened in chapter 17 clarify and expound on the covenant made in chapter 15. At the beginning, at, at age 99, some 24 years after Abraham had moved to Canaan, God approaches Abraham again. He calls Abraham to walk before him and to be blameless. God repeats and expounds of the promises that he made to Abraham and actually changes his name from Abram to Abraham at this time. Then he gives him the sign of circumcision. And this is really one of the big takeaways from chapter 17. Circumcision is the ceremonial sign of inclusion in the covenant people of God. It's an outward sign of God's covenant relationship with Abraham's household and Abraham's descendants. It's not incidental. It's not a small deal. Neglect of it means that the person is cut off from the people of God. We'll see that it will remain important throughout the story of the whole world as we continue to to unpack that in the weeks to come. From there, God tells Abraham that he will cause a son to be born to Sarah. And this is where Abraham kind of balks. God tells him something, and, and frankly, it's kind of amazing. I mentioned before that Abraham had conceived a child by Hagar. That child's name, is that child is a son, and his name is Ishmael. And because God had shown kindness to Hagar and Ishmael in chapter 16, Abraham might be under the impression that God will accept Ishmael as the covenant heir. He accepts God to ask, or he asks God to accept Ishmael as the heir because he and Sarah are just too old to have any more children at this point. God declines Ishmael uh, while showing, but still showing kindness to him, then insists, insists again that Sarah will produce the covenant heir. Abraham responds in faith by receiving circumcision for him and the males of his household. A couple more important takeaways. It's important to note that before circumcision is given as a covenantal sign and obligation, Abraham is called to walk before the Lord and be blameless. That, that is the deeper, truer mark of the people of God. The outward sign that we are the covenant people For them, it would have been circumcision. We'll show later how it's baptism for us. 
The outward sign should align with the inward reality that comes from being the covenant people of God. And that inward reality is growing holiness, growing Christ-likeness, growing in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Takeaway number two. Abraham would have been pleased for Ishmael to be his heir, but God cannot accept Ishmael. The problem with Ishmael is this. Uh, Sometimes, even older men can have children naturally with younger women. It's possible through merely human means. Paul, in explaining the emptiness of Mosaic law keeping after Christ has already come, will comment on this event uh, in Galatians 4, 22 and 23. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So you see what's happening? God's covenant people must come through God's covenant promises. No fleshly or merely human effort is going to suffice. Uh, Finally, we get to Genesis chapter 20, and God is going to make good on his promise to Abraham. I'll summarize again. Isaac is born, so the promised covenant heir um, finally comes. Interestingly, his name means laugh. He laughs, and it's a name that's given by God earlier in in the story. I'm not sure who's supposed to be laughing here. Sarah laughs in chapter 19 when she's told she will conceive. Abraham scoffs in chapter 17 when he's told Sarah will conceive. But it seems like it's God who has the last laugh, as his people behold with wonder a miracle that they denied was was possible. So that brings us to our second big takeaway. Number two, God is a promise-keeping God. God is a covenant-upholding God. At this point, God has demonstrated his power again and again to do what he says he will through the conception and birth of Isaac. The land promise that God has made to Abraham isn't going to be fulfilled for a couple hundred years or a few hundred years, but Abraham can have confidence that it will be fulfilled because he's already seen God do the impossible. So, how does this big story intersect with the little stories of our lives with our faith in Jesus Christ. Number one, we learn through it that God deals covenantally with his people. God is a covenant-making God. Understanding covenant is fundamental to understanding God's interactions with all of his people, with all of his followers. It's gonna come up again and again throughout the story. We'll see it with David, we'll see it with Moses, and ultimately we'll see it with Jesus Christ. So learning about it now and understanding it now is extremely helpful for understanding what God is doing and how God is doing it later in the story. Number two, God has blessed the world through Abraham, through Abraham's son, Jesus. When God promised to bless the nations through Abraham, that was what he was talking about. Jesus, the son of Abraham, will be born and will bear the sin of all those who would believe in him. He'll come and die and rise again, and then he'll send his disciples to the nations to make disciples of all nations. This fulfills the promise. The third way it interacts with our own stories is uh, Abraham provides an example of maturing faithfulness. 
He's not perfect, but we'll see in, in one more passage that we'll look at today how Abraham's faith and obedience have grown and matured over time. Turn to Genesis chapter 22. And again, I'm going to summarize the first 14 verses. I'm also presuming that you might be somewhat familiar with the story, and I'm kind of banking on that. Um, but if you need any blanks filled in, talk to Trevor. <laughs> so at the beginning of chapter 22, God calls Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It is a huge, huge turn in the story. But this time, Abraham responds differently. He responds with instant obedience and without question. He makes the preparations. He sets out on the journey. He takes Isaac to the place where, where God has shown him, binds Isaac, and raises the knife over his head. And when Abraham is about to strike the killing blow, God intervenes to stop him holds him back, and provides another sacrifice. And Abraham will actually name the place uh, God provides. I'm kind of doing that one from memory, so you can check me on that. The test God puts Abraham to is almost painful to behold. There's sort of a, a cognitive dissonance that goes with being promised that the seed would come through Isaac and then being told to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. But the test is essential for a couple reasons. One, it demonstrates the growth and maturation of Abraham's faith over the course of decades. Brothers and sisters, if our obedience is slow at this point in our lives, there's hope that over the course of those lives, the growing knowledge of God faithfully fulfilling his promises will transform us into the kind of Christ follower that God intends us to be. The author of Hebrews commends Abraham for this in, in his letter to the church. Hebrews 11, verse 17 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Though Isaac shall your, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham has seen God create life where there was no life when Sarah conceives for the first time after her childbearing years are long over. In Abraham's mind, the death of Isaac is not going to prevent God from making Isaac the covenant heir. He's seen God bring their ability to conceive back to life. He believes that God will bring, be able to bring Isaac back to life as well. Let's take a look at verse 15 uh, in chapter 22. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies." And in, your, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Finally, Abraham demonstrates for us that God himself is the great reward. 
Faced with, faced with the decision between walking with the Lord through obedience and preserving his own offspring, preserving his blessing, Abraham chooses God. Abraham chooses God. If we enjoy any blessing in life, career, family, land, wealth, whatever it is, all of these things are intended for one ultimate purpose, to draw us closer to our Father in heaven. Land and offspring are nice, but they exist to bring about God's purpose in creating a people for himself. All right, I'm going to go ahead and kind of wrap things up and, and get ready to land the plane. It's interesting to see how the story of the whole world has progressed up to now. Stephen Wellham and Peter Gentry in Kingdom Through Covenant point out that in some ways, Noah can be thought of as another Adam. There's some interesting similarities. Adam had three named sons. Noah has three sons. Adam is a gardener. Noah is a vine dresser. All humanity traces their lineage to Adam, and all humanity traces their lineage to Noah. So when Adam fails to produce a people for God, God effectively starts over with Noah. However, Noah's line fails too. God has to start again. Enter Abraham. He also serves as another Adam insofar as he represents God's next iteration of creating a people for himself. But there's one big difference. There won't be any do-overs after this. Humanity in Adam before the fall fails to become the people of God, despite the advantages of not having yet sinned and having direct communion with the Lord of all the creation, the Lord of all creation. That humanity, that, that humanity in Adam doesn't and maybe can't resist the devil as the people of God ought to be able to. Humanity in Noah fails, too, to become the people of God, despite having seen the, the sheer, massive totality of God's judgment on sinful men, but having received mercy themselves. In no time, drunkenness, perversion, rebellion against God's purpose for their lives um, all dominate humanity once again. They should be a chastened people, but still... Sin multiplies, sin compounds. So what's it going to take to make a people that God can dwell with? Only God keeping his promise to make dead people alive towards him can make such a people. Only that can begin to reverse the curse. That's why God has to make Isaac the covenant heir. God was demonstrating that his people are not the natural offspring of faithless men from generation to generation. His people will be those who cannot be born unless he brings them to life. I want to make a few last comments to help us apply what we've seen today. If you're here this morning walking faithfully with the Lord, here's what I would say to you. The maturity that we're striving for in Christ is the same maturity that Abraham was, was learning over the course of his life. It's a process of decades. Settle in. Keep at it, even if it takes 30 plus years. Enjoy each ounce of sanctification into the image of Christ that we see along the way, but keep going. If you come here this morning, limping, wounded, doubting, and uncertain, here's what I would say to you. Abraham stood where you stand. The remedy for him and for you 
is to hear God speak his promises again. Believe it or not, the promises we have in Christ are greater than the ones that were made to Abraham. Hearing these promises comes through the careful reading of his word and meditating on the promises found there. And lastly, uh, if you come into our our congregation this morning and you don't know Christ uh, and you don't believe these stories, uh, this is what I would say to you. God does have a plan to be present with his people in the place he prepares for them. Despite not believing, you are a member of a race that was made to know the Lord and enjoy him forever. Even followers of Christ, I think, struggle to imagine how all-satisfying it will be to stand in his presence. But it's the reason that you and I exist. The God of Abraham invites you to be made one of his people through repentance and belief in Abraham's seed, Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about this invitation, uh, please grab me or a pastor or literally just about anybody within arm's reach of you this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that you are a promise-making, promise-keeping, covenant-making and covenant-upholding God. You have been so gracious to us in inviting us in and making us your own. Uh, And Father, we pray that as we walk through your story, we'll grow in understanding, uh, grow in being able to piece together all the parts of the story to see the glorious work of redemption that you've done throughout history and are doing in our lives today. Father, we pray that you'll help us to grow in grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to mature in faith, shown through obedience. And I ask these things in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.